Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, and I am super excited to have Dr. Philip Ovadia on our show today. He is a cardiac surgeon, and one thing that intrigued me about him, if you follow me enough, you realize that I believe as a pharmacist, I don't believe statins and cholesterol are really the answer to cardiovascular disease. Well, Dr. Ovadia is a cardiac surgeon, and I saw him on social media, um, checked out his book. We'll be talking about his book today, too, Stay Off My Operating Table. And um, he, he is under the same opinions. And it's very rare to find a cardiac surgeon that doesn't, that doesn't believe in statins. So um, I'm super excited to, to hear him share, share how he came to that conclusion today. So Dr. Ovadia, welcome to our show. Great to be here with you, Sean. Really excited to have this conversation. Um, I love uh, talking with pharmacists who are, you know, on the front lines uh, of our healthcare situation. And you're, um, you know, working with these patients and trying to help them to understand, uh, you know, their medications and making sure that there aren't conflicts with their medications. Uh, and so uh, I think uh, it, this is a very important discussion uh, for us to have and for the people to hear. Yeah. Well, thank you for being on. And speaking of medications, uh, my wife and I are two pharmacists that do not believe in statins to um, prevent cardiovascular disease. And my rational thought is, is that, you know, statins have been out since uh, 1989, Mevacor, statin came out in 88, 89, somewhere in the late 80s. And cardiovascular disease for Americans is at an all-time high, yet I don't know the numbers, but there are millions of people on on statins and they don't seem to be working. So what are your comments about that? Yeah, so I have uh, made those same observations. Um, you know, like you said, statins have been around now for 30 plus years. They have been the most widely class, uh, most widely prescribed class of medications for a long, long time now. And we're not seeing a noticeable impact on the uh, incidence of heart disease. Heart disease remains the number one killer far and away uh, here in the U.S. and worldwide. Um, the um, argument uh, that you'll, I guess, get from statin proponents is, well, people aren't taking them enough. We're not driving cholesterol yeah. levels low enough. Uh, now, of course, we have, uh, you know, PCSK9 inhibitors that will lower cholesterol even more than statins. Um, but, you know, when you look at the totality of the evidence, um, we see that, you know, overall on a population level, LDL cholesterol levels are much lower today than they were 30 years ago. Um, we uh, and yet we have the data that shows, you know, for instance, that half of the patients that show up with heart attacks at the hospital have what are considered, you know, low enough normal cholesterol levels within the guidelines, as they're said. Uh, I make the same observation, the patients that are coming to me for surgery. Uh, more than half of them are on statin medications um, and, uh, you know, have low LDL cholesterol levels, yet they're still ending up on my operating table. So I, you know, have started to ask the similar questions. And when you really dig into the data around statins, you see that the effects of statins are very minimal. 
Um, and um, you start to question whether or not it's worth it because we also know that the side effects of statins are more than they are purported to be. And that risk benefit equation uh, for most cases really doesn't seem to uh, you know, support uh, being on statins. Uh, now, the bigger picture for me is that cholesterol is the wrong focus. It is clear, it is clear that cholesterol is not a root cause of heart disease. It plays a role in the process, um, but it is not the root cause of heart disease. And if you're not treating the root cause of the problem, if you're only treating the downstream, uh, you know, parts of the problem, you're not going to have a significant impact. Uh, so my focus is on getting to the root cause of heart disease, addressing the root cause of heart disease. And as we're going to talk about, you know, that really has to do with diet and lifestyle. Uh, and that is where we should be focusing our efforts to try and have a meaningful impact on the incidence of heart disease. Well, speaking of diet and lifestyle, I, I, I always, you know, wondered, you know, it's like, okay, somebody's 150 pounds overweight, they have type 2 diabetes, they have um, all these other conditions um, related to their obesity, and we're going to put them on a statin and it's going to decrease their cardiovascular risk. I'm not buying it. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it, it if it at best is going to be a small drop in the bucket, but you're right, you know, unless you address all of those underlying conditions, um, the obesity, the diabetes, uh, you're not going to have a meaningful impact on that patient's uh, risk of heart disease. And again, you know, what's most powerful is diabetes, heart disease. Uh, they share a common root cause. And if we address that root cause, we're going to have meaningful impact. And it really extends beyond that. You can lump in things like Alzheimer's disease, many forms of cancer, uh, the vast majority of the chronic disease that is plaguing our society um, has a common root cause. And if we get to that root cause, if we address that root cause, that is how we're going to have a meaningful impact. So let's go ahead and talk about the root cause. What is it? Yeah. So the root cause is uh, poor metabolic health. Uh, and there are a couple of terms that people might hear around this. Uh, you might hear uh, the term insulin resistance. Um, but ultimately, uh, what metabolic health refers to is your body's ability to properly utilize the inputs that you are giving it. And the primary input that we give our bodies is the food that we eat. And when we become metabolically unhealthy, we can no longer properly process and utilize the food that we are eating. Uh, basically, too much of it ends up getting stored. Uh, that's what fat is. It's stored energy from the food we eat. And we're not able to actually tap into that stored energy. So if we go back, you know, kind of from an evolutionary standpoint, the way the system was designed, the way that our bodies evolved um, is that, you know, there are going to be times when food, when energy is not available to us. So we needed a way to survive that. And we have this storage mechanism, which is body fat. Um, and during times when food wasn't available, our bodies would be able to burn that stored energy. Our modern food environment has broken that system in a number of ways. 
Um, we end up storing too much energy and we end up setting up a, uh, uh, a milieu or hormonal milieu in our bodies that we can't actually access the stored energy. Uh, so this is why we see people who are overweight and they're hungry all the time. When again, you, when you step back and think about that, that makes no sense. You know, if you all of this body fat that's energy, you really shouldn't be hungry because you have all the energy you need to fuel your body. Um, but again, our modern food environment has created a system where we can't actually tap into that stored energy. And that's what we need to get at. You know, that is the root cause of chronic disease. Uh, that is the root cause of heart disease, diabetes, all of these other things that are plaguing our society. And so that is what we need to address. So I, I'm with you 100%. And thank you for that. That was very educational. Um, and I think meta metabolic health is what is really causing chronic disease in, in this country um, and, and across the world. Um, and I think one of the things is, is that, you know, one of the things I remind our um, listeners and viewers about and my patients is that, you know, our body is evolutionary speaking, just like you said, it's good at storing fat for times when we didn't have food. And, and the problem is, is that we have almost an unlimited supply of food. So we're constantly storing fat. Um, so one of my beliefs is, is that evolutionarily speaking, that we used to go through longer periods of fasting. And that is one of the ways that we can get in better metabolic health. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, we have problems with the types of food that we are eating, the amount of food that we are eating, and how frequently we are eating. And you really need to look at all three components. Uh, now, it turns out that when you eat the right foods, you're going to be hungry less often, you're going to eat less often, and you know, for most people, you end up eating less, uh, but certainly you end up eating an appropriate amount. Um, our processed food, the modern food environment, the heavily processed food, and this includes things like processed carbohydrates. Uh, this includes processed fats, things like vegetable and seed oils, and they literally hijack our metabolism. Um, they interfere with the proper uh, hunger signaling. Uh, they make us hungry more often. And they don't provide the nutrients that our bodies are actually seeking. Um, you know, one thing that I, I explain to people all the time uh, that is oftentimes misunderstood is our body doesn't sense calories. It, it doesn't sense how much food we are eating. Our body tracks nutrients. It knows the nutrients that it needs. These include things like vitamins and minerals and adequate amounts of protein. Um, and if we're not getting those nutrients, it's going to tell us, keep eating. We need to get, you know, more stuff for our body to thrive and survive. And the problem with these processed foods is that they are designed to make us more hungry and they are not providing our body with the nutrients that we need. Uh, and so that's where we get into the situation where people eat too frequently, eat too much, uh, and are eating the wrong types of food. Well, and a perfect example of our body needing nutrients and not sensing calories is 
drinking your calories. So let's say it's soda pop or let's say it's beer. Um, you never really feel full. You can drink a can of Pepsi that's 150 calories and you can do that 10 times and you'll never feel full. Um, but you've just got your day's worth of calories if you lead a sedentary life. So that's a perfect example. Whereas if you eat um, eight ounces of steak, um, you're in general, for most people, you're going to start feeling full. Um, that's why it's hard to eat. It's hard to overeat real food that has nu- it is nutrient dense. And I believe that, you know, steak and, and meat is one of those. Yes, definitely. Uh, I agree wholeheartedly. And, um, you know, as I discuss in the book, uh, my number one rule uh, for improving your metabolic health is to eat whole real food. And I define that as the things that grow in the ground and the things that eat the things that grow in the ground. Um, You know, you want to eat animal uh, products. And um, one of the major myths that I try and dispel is that animal protein, red meat, is bad for our health. It simply isn't. Uh, It is the food that we evolved eating. Our body is designed to optimally, you know, process that food. Uh, So um, all of what you hear about red meat being tied to heart disease and red meat being tied to cancer uh, and, you know, whatever other negative health outcomes have been attributed to red meat uh, all comes from very poorly done science. And it's all in the context of eating processed food. Uh, And it's not the red meat that's the problem. It's all of the processed food that comes with it. uh, That's the problem. And I it's it's so refreshing to hear a cardiologist say this. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, and uh, I personally have experienced, you know, uh, amazing health benefits uh, from eating this way. Uh, I work with patients now uh, frequently, uh, you know, besides being a heart surgeon, I have a telemedicine practice that I work with people to help them not need heart surgery. And uh, we see amazing results, amazing improvements in metabolic health and overall health uh, when people eliminate processed food and they just start eating whole real food. Now, talk about, let's talk about saturated fat. Uh, yep. You know, many cardiologists that, and I learned in pharmacy school many years ago um, that saturated fat is bad and it does attribute to heart disease. Uh, will you comment on that? Yeah, again, uh, the evidence is really to the contrary when you look at it. The only studies that have associated uh, saturated fat with heart disease are poorly done Um, you know, epidemiologic studies, what we call them. You know, these are kind of population level studies where they look at the amount of saturated fat that's being eaten and they tie it to the incidence of heart disease. Um, The original sort of development of that theory goes back to the 1950s, a scientist Mm -hmm. by the name of Ansel Keys. And um, in the 1950s, we were experiencing an explosion in heart disease. Um, The sitting president of the United States, President Eisenhower, had a heart attack while he was in office. And so that appropriately set off alarm bells. And Ansel Keys uh, primarily put forth the theory that um, saturated fat in the diet was the driving force between heart disease. And he published a study uh, called the Six Country Study, where he mapped out the amount of saturated fat that uh, was being consumed by different countries on a population level and the amount of heart disease that uh, was being experienced in those countries. And it looks like a nice straight line, you know, a good association there. Uh, 
The problem is, is that Ansel Keys had access to data from 22 countries and he handpicked the six countries that line up uh, and he ignored the other countries that didn't line up. And, you know, this was acknowledged for a long period of time. There was, you know, you would hear about the French paradox where the French had the highest levels of saturated fat consumption and some of the lowest levels of heart disease. And everyone would say, well, that's just an outlier. That's just a paradox. Uh, but, you know, the reality is, is that it's because saturated fat has, you know, doesn't correlate with heart disease. Um, we have intervention studies that were then done where they took saturated fat out of the diet. They substituted polyunsaturated fats, processed fats, vegetable and seed oils. Um, yes, people's cholesterol levels go down when you do that, uh, but they don't live longer and they don't have less heart disease. Uh, so, uh, you know, and that we have a number of studies, uh, including one led by Ansel Keys's team that he didn't publish the results on because he was disappointed with the, you know, the results didn't support his uh, preconceived conclusion. So um, most people don't realize this, but the American Heart Association um, has actually removed from their recommendations the limitations on saturated fat. Uh, the U.S. dietary guidelines no longer have a limitation on saturated fat. It's just that that message uh, hasn't gotten to the people and isn't promoted you know, they kind of quietly took it out of the guidelines. They sort of buried it in, you know, page 80 of the, you know, 300 page report. Uh, but the reality is uh, when you look at the totality of the evidence, saturated fat is not a cause of heart disease. And um, again, uh, saturated fat from animal products uh, is something we have been eating for millions of years uh, as human beings. And heart disease only became a problem, you know, within the past 75 to 100 years. Uh, so it does not make sense that saturated fat is causing that. The last piece of evidence I'll point out is similar to what we were talking about earlier. Um, the amount of saturated fat that Americans have consumed has dropped significantly over the past 50 years in line with the dietary, you know, guide in line with the advice that was being given. And yet, as we mentioned, the incidence of heart disease is not changing significantly. So uh, there is no reason to fear saturated fat in the diet um, and uh, natural saturated fats that occur in animal uh, foods and even some of the plant foods should not be avoided um, as part of uh, good heart health. I, I, it's like I said, it's so refreshing to hear, to hear this from a cardiologist. Uh, I, I, I did, I've debated with many a cardiologist on the subject and, um, I, you know, I've got to be careful as a pharmacist when the, you know, when the patients will come in and they'll talk to me about these things. And I'm like, but I'm like you, I just like, let, let's just think rational about it. If red meat and animal products were so bad, how did we survive on them for thousands of years? I mean, seriously, just, just, just think about that. Yeah, so. exactly. Um, and, you know, that, uh, you know, I've never heard a good answer to that. You know, people will say, oh, well, uh, the cavemen didn't live long enough to develop heart disease uh, or, you know, uh, prior to, you know, 19, you know, the reason that, you know, we saw heart disease explode you know, starting in the 1920s and then really in the 1950s is just because people 
started living long enough to develop heart disease. Um, but when you, again, look into that data, it doesn't hold up. Uh, no. You know, when you take out the effects of childhood mortality, exactly. trauma, you know, things like that, people that, you know, people live just as long uh, 50, 70 years ago uh, as they did uh, today. And in fact, you know, it's very troubling to see uh, that for the first time, you know, since uh, the early 1900s, um, our average lifespan in the United States is going down, is decreasing, has actually decreased five or six years in a row now. Uh, and, uh, you know, we haven't seen that uh, really since we started tracking it reliably. Uh, and here we are, you know, eating the lowest fat diets, um, you know, having the lowest cholesterol levels we've ever had. And yet our lifespan is going down instead of up. Well, and we really shouldn't be surprised when we look around in America. I mean, you know, 50% of patients are obese or, or people are obese. So we really shouldn't be surprised that, you know, our um, longevity is going down. I mean, it's a perfect example of, you know, we don't need fancy cholesterol numbers, fancy labs, fancy tests um, to look at what's going on with people's metabolic health in our country in general. I mean, you know, just, just, just go out and you see people and it's just like, it's unreal. I mean, and, and it seems like, and I'd love your opinion on this, Dr. Avadia is the younger ones are even worse. I mean, my wife and I say it all the time. I mean, people in their twenties that are obese. I mean, that just, when I was a kid, that, that just, there was one out of a hundred like that. Now it's 90 out of a hundred. Yeah, uh, this is a very alarming trend that I'm seeing. So I started uh, my career as a heart surgeon in 2003, 20 years ago. Um, at the time that I started, uh, the average age of the patients that we would operate on was in the 70s. Uh, and it would be unusual to see someone in their 50s. Um, here we are 20 years later. I am routinely operating on 40 and 50 year olds. And I even operate on 30 year olds, uh, you know, not infrequently these days. Uh, so to see that, um, you know, acceleration of, uh, you know, heart disease occurring younger and younger is a very concerning trend. And you're right, the childhood more, the childhood obesity statistics, oh um, the statistics around children developing type two diabetes, um, you know, which used to be called uh, adult onset diabetes. Right. Now, you know, teenagers are routinely uh, developing this disease. Um, very scary, uh, very shocking statistics. And this is why, you know, we need to uh, change our course. You know, what we are doing is clearly not working. Um, the, the dietary guidelines, the being overly focused on pharmaceutical treatments, um, it is not working. And if we're going to, you know, save our society, uh, we need to start making significant changes in our food environment. Uh, that's at the systemic level. Uh, but the message I want to get across to people is that 
each one of us has the ability to take charge of our health, to start Absolutely. making these changes. Um, you don't have to wait and you definitely shouldn't wait uh, for, you know, the government to do it for you, for the healthcare system to do it for you. The food industry isn't going to do it for you. The pharmaceutical industry isn't going to do it for you. Your, your health insurance company is not going to yep. do it for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you need to take charge of your health. You need to, uh, you know, research this and connect with the practitioners that are, you know, advocating uh, and are knowledgeable about these things and can help you to take charge of your health and make the changes that are going to make you healthy and keep you healthy. Amen to that. So speaking of your operating table, tell us about your book. Yeah. So uh, stay off my operating, stay off my operating table. It really is my mantra. And it really is my mission in life. Um, I want to keep as many people as possible off of the operating table. I want you to not develop heart disease and not need to see me as a heart surgeon. Uh, the book came out uh, now uh, about a year and a half ago, doing phenomenally well, you know, number one uh, in many categories on Amazon. Uh, and uh, it's really, you know, uh, it's really inspiring to me uh, to see the changes that people get just from reading the book. You know, you don't need to work with me necessarily one-on-one uh, -on -one in my medical practice. Um, I have people all the time. You can read the reviews there on Amazon. They read the book, they make the changes, and they're seeing phenomenal results uh, in their life. Uh, so uh, that was what I hope to accomplish with the book. You know, my time is limited. Uh, my and geography is limited. You know, I can only work with so many people one on one, but I want to get this message to as many people as possible. And, uh, you know, that's what the that's what the book does. Uh, so, um, like I said, I'm, I'm really uh, pleased with the results it's getting and we need to just keep spreading the message. My favorite message to get is, you know, I read the book, I made some changes and then I gave the book to five other people and they're making the changes and that's how we really have the impact that exponential growth uh as this spreads yeah i i definitely love it um it's a great name it it you know coming from a, a cardiac surgeon it's just very powerful to write a book like this um and talk like this because you just don't hear that from your traditional cardiologist uh you know you hear him preach statins you hear him preach all this drug therapy um and yet, you know, it's not working, like you say. Um, so we, we've got to do something different. So speaking of drug therapy, hypothetical patient. Um, if you saw a patient with a cholesterol of otherwise generally healthy, you know, low insulin levels, um, low glucose levels, no diabetes, you know, no obesity, um, and their cholesterol was 240, and their LDL, total cholesterol, and their LDL was... 150, 160. Would you put them on a statin? So, you know, the, um, the, the discussion around this um, is, you know, very nuanced, uh, and it's really going to depend on individual situations. Uh, the vast majority of the time, the answer is no. Um, 
But there's some more information that I want to get. Uh, ultimately, you know, one of the things I want people to understand is that total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol um, are lousy markers. Uh, they don't really tell us a whole lot. It's like a 50-50 shot, you know, uh, whether it means anything. And you need to dig deeper. And you need to find a physician who understands this and can dig deeper with you. And there are a number of things that I end up looking at in these scenarios. And you mentioned some of them. I want to know what that patient's metabolic health is. I want to know what their insulin levels are. I want to know if they're insulin sensitive. I want to know um, what type of cholesterol particles they have. Uh, LDL is a class of cholesterol-containing uh, particles. Um, and within that, there are small, dense particles which do predispose to development of heart disease. And there are large, fluffy particles that don't predispose to development of heart disease. And I want to know which one do you have? Um, and if you have a lot of small, dense particles, um, the answer is usually not, you know, put you on a medication to lower your overall cholesterol. The answer is address your insulin resistance, which, which is causing those particles to be small and damaged in the first place. Um, so the vast majority of the time, the answer is going to be no. Um, the other piece of information that I think it's very helpful for most people to have is do you actually have any plaque in the arteries of your heart right. or do you not have plaque in the arteries of your heart? There's a test called the coronary artery calcium scan. It's a type of CT scan, very easy to perform, takes five minutes. You don't have to put an IV in. Um, typically, uh, here in the U.S., the cost is going to be between $50 and $200. Um, insurance typically won't cover it, but it, it, it's relatively inexpensive, and I think it's a worthwhile investment in your health. And it will show us whether or not you have plaque forming in your arteries, uh, because that's a very powerful piece of information uh, when we're trying to do uh, this calculation. You know, Ultimately, what I tell people is if you're not going to address your metabolic health, if you are metabolically unhealthy, if you are insulin resistant, if you are diabetic and your cholesterol level is high, there may be a small amount of benefit to lowering your cholesterol level. But it's small and you would get much more impact if you address your metabolic health, if you address your insulin resistance. Uh, you reverse your type 2 diabetes, which is very doable, uh, those are going to be the things that are going to meaningfully impact your risk of developing heart disease. And, and what about triglyceride HDL ratio? Yeah, so triglyceride HDL ratio is a good number to look at because it reflects your insulin sensitivity. Uh, the lower that ratio is, the better. So again, we're dividing your triglycerides by your HDL. Um, under two uh, for that ratio is usually pretty good. Um, ideal is for it to be less than one. So you want your triglycerides to actually be less than your HDL. Um, it's an indirect uh, indicator of insulin resistance. I would rather directly measure insulin resistance, which we can do. Um, but if uh, you know your doctor doesn't know how to do that for you or just won't do it for you. Uh, you know, a, 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 a simple test to look at because 
all doctors get cholesterol panels these days is to look at that triglycerides and your HDL and calculate that ratio. And if it's more than two, if your triglycerides are more than double your HDL cholesterol, it's a warning sign. Um, interestingly, when you look at the measures of metabolic health that we use, there were five standard measures that we use to assess metabolic health. Um, triglycerides and HDL are two of them. LDL is not one of them. Uh, so it's triglycerides, it's HDL, it's your fasting blood glucose level, and then it's your blood pressure and your waist circumference. And those five measures uh, can give you a lot of information about your metabolic health. So that's where I usually tell people to start. Well, that's... that's um very interesting and what i like about that one is that what i like about those five is that one of those waist circumference you don't even need to do a test i mean you can just look at somebody and say well you know what i mean you're not metabolically healthy i mean we have all these fancy tests and it's like you know i always my, my wife is really good at giving this analogy it's like you know when when you take your dog to a vet's office or a horse or a cow or whatever when a vet looks at them they don't need to run any fancy tests. They're like, hey, uh, what you feeding your dog? Your dog doesn't look good, right? But in the United States, we do all these fancy, you know, fancy tests when in reality we can tell by looking. It's like, look, do they look well? You know, that's one of the big tests. And, and waist circumference um, is, is a very important one. Yeah, definitely. It, it's actually when you look at those five uh, measurements, it turns out that waist circumference alone uh, is the most powerful predictor of metabolic health. And like you said, it's an easy test to do. You know, all you need is a tape measure. Uh, and in reality, you're right. You can look at most people and, and figure it out. Uh, but, uh, you know, very simple test people can do at home. And, uh, you know, I, I strongly recommend people check that. Uh, if you're a man, you want it to be less than 40 inches. If you're a woman, you want it to be less than 35 inches. Uh, and uh, just start there uh, to figure out, you know, if you are or are not metabolically healthy. That's a pretty simple one. I, I know I've heard the, uh, you probably, you can comment on this. I've heard your waist circumference should be half your height at least, or is that, have you heard that one? I can't yeah, remember so, that. Um, you know, that's kind of an ideal goal to have your waist circumference be half of your height. Uh, and that's something to aim for. Uh, but the official cutoff that we use for determining metabolic health, like I said, is 40 inches for men, uh, 35 inches for women. But half your height is a good, uh, you know, kind of uh, guideline as well to look for. So let's go through those one more time. Waist circumference. Yep. There's five of them. HDL, or yeah, HDL triglycerides, three. What are the other two? Did you say insulin? Your uh, fasting blood glucose level. Fasting blood glucose. And then your blood pressure. And your blood pressure. Okay. All right. And blood pressure, what, what, what are the numbers showing that we should push for? Yeah. So uh, the goal for your blood pressure is for it to be less than 130 over 85, both of those numbers under those uh, limits. And that needs to be without the use of medication. Uh, so if you've been diagnosed with high blood pressure, it is a sign of poor metabolic health. And it's oftentimes the first sign. Uh, it's just that doctors don't connect the dots there. They don't recognize it as a pro as an indicator of a metabolic health problem. They just put you on medications to treat the high blood pressure. 
Awesome. Well, as we wrap this uh, show up, uh, Dr. Ovadia, um, what do you have a passion for? I have a passion for keeping people off my operating table, uh, you know, and so I want people to take charge of their health. I want people to be empowered uh, to manage their health and not be dependent uh, on the healthcare system. And if anybody has any questions or wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah. So uh, my website, ifixhearts.com. Com is the best place to get started. Um, I have a, a simple free quiz uh, on the site uh, that will take you through those metabolic health measures and help you determine if you're metabolically healthy or not. And then you can learn about all the ways that, uh, you know, me and my team work with people. We have uh, courses that are available. We have a membership program. We have a group coaching membership program uh, that people are just seeing phenomenal results from. And then I have my private telemedicine practice that I work with people one-on-one to, you know, keep them off my operating table. Or quite honestly, I work with people who have already been on the operating table, already developed heart disease, but they don't want it to be an ongoing problem in their life. So uh, you can get all the information over at ifixhearts.com. If you want to interact with me uh, on social media, I'm most active on Twitter at ifixhearts. Um, uh, You can also find me on Instagram. Uh, Just look up my name. Uh, It's Ovadia Heart Health over there. Someone already had Ifix Hearts. Uh, But uh, if you just Google my name, you know, you'll, you'll find me as well. I think that's where I found you is on Twitter. And I, and I love following you on Twitter. Um, lots of good information. We have a, a viewer that just said informative. Thank you. So Dr. Ovadia, thank you. Uh, I also want to just say that, you know, our, the goal of our, I love some of the words that came out when you were talking about this, because uh, one of our goals for our podcast when we started it is to educate and empower individuals to take charge of their own health. I mean, a doctor's not going to do it. A pharmacist's not going to do it. Your insurance company, the government, like you said, nobody is going to do it but yourself. So my goal is to educate and empower individuals to do that. And you've helped us realize that goal today. So I really appreciate it. Great being with you here, Sean. Great conversation and uh, keep up the great work. You're, you're, you're welcome. Thank you for being on. And listeners and viewers, tune in at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time today. We will have Hall of Fame basketball player John Stockton on our show um, talking about medical freedom. So he will talk about how he went from a Hall of Fame basketball player to talking about medical freedom. So you don't want to miss out. Tune into that at 4 p.m. today. We will be actually uh live in spokane with him so um you don't want to miss out on that dr vadia thank you listeners and viewers thank you for tuning in to health solutions with sean and janet needham thank you